Hello there, podcast listener. Amber Noel here. It's my turn to be a listener now. I would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. The Living Church, as you might know, is a nonprofit communications ministry with a heart for Christian unity, especially in the Anglican communion. And we want to keep our mission sharp in all we do, including the podcast, and have fun, obviously. But would you write to me and let me know how we're doing? What's the podcast doing for you? Is it making a difference in your thinking, your ministry, your prayer life, your daily walk with your golden doodle? Do you have some hot takes on what we could do better? I want to hear it all. I might even read your comments on the next episode. There are so many great podcasts out there. I want to do more of what The Living Church is here to do and less of what it's not. So there are two things you can do to help. First, make sure you're following us from a podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Find us on the page and click follow. The second thing you can do is email me, ambernoel at livingchurch.org. Share with me a thing or two you've gotten from the podcast over the years. And if you want, include something we might do better. Help us stay not just a great podcast, but on mission. Follow us, email me, A-M-B-E-R-N-O-E-L at livingchurch.org. I can't wait to hear from you. The Living Church, serving the Episcopal Church and Anglican Communion since 1878. Welcome to the Living Church Podcast. Happy All Hallows' Eve and All Saints' Day, dear listeners, or close enough. If you think this episode will be your typical episode, you're dead wrong. Yes, as you may have guessed, today we're dealing with grave matter on the Living Church podcast. Literally, we are talking about graves, churchyards, clergy wills from the 17th and 18th centuries in Wales, and some fascinating social and religious history that these wills unearth. What does it mean if a dying man leaves his wife a featherbed? What is an apostle spoon? How did poverty, wealth, and marriage prohibitions affect clergy life? Why did so many people give away cheese in their wills? And yes, you will have to put up with puns throughout the episode. (laughs) Though I promise this intro is as bad as that will get. This scary cool history conversation is courtesy of Dr. Sarah Ward Clavier. Sarah is Senior Lecturer in Early Modern History at the University of the West of England, Bristol. She has a book out called Royalism, Religion, and Revolution, Wales, 1640 to 1688. We'll include a link to that in the show notes. Sarah mentions the English Restoration and Interregnum in our episode today. So, quick definition of these for those who don't know, and I surely did not. When King Charles I was executed in 1649, England had no king. Britain was run by various councils, assemblies, and parliaments until Charles II took the throne in 1660, thus began the Restoration. Final note, our episode opened today with amazing organ work by Julian Petralia, organ scholar at Incarnation Episcopal Church in Dallas, Texas. And at the end of the episode, you'll get to hear Julian play the piece in full, Prelude in C minor by Bach. Definitely stick around for that. Now, shake out your church history trick-or-treat bag and open it wide. I promise more treats than tricks today. We hope you enjoy the conversation. What is this about pigs? Pigs rootling? <laughs> you said it's a little bit creepy, but not too creepy. 
Well, so this is a kind of vignette that we get from this slightly mad royalist, um, an Anglican loyalist, Edward Lloyd. Um, he hates his parliamentarian committee. He's forever writing to them in complaint. And one of the things that he complained about in particular was a time when he was walking through the graveyard in Oswestry. Street. And he noticed that there was disturbance in the graves, the, the earth had been disturbed um, and he wondered what would happen. And he, he, he heard snuffling uh, and he saw rootling around in the earth uh, a herd of pigs. So could have been creepy, uh, could have been creepier. Dr. Sarah Ward-Clavier, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. I'm going to start today with probably the most important question that I'll ask you all day. Do you celebrate Halloween Our family tradition in my family was that we would hide with the lights off so that the children couldn't get sweets from us when they came to the door. Um, And that's because everyone's bad at remembering dates and we just forgot it was the 31st. And so it was annual. Oh, no, we've forgotten to buy sweets. We better hide under the sofa so we don't get trick or treated. Let's talk about some clergy wills. Let's talk about some dead vicars. Uh, and let's talk about what they left behind, the secrets of their lives. So when did this clergy will project or idea start for you? What in the world got you interested in digging up these stories? So I can't, I can't quite remember what the original impetus was, but I wanted to find out what bishops were saying around the time of the Restoration, um, during the Interregnum, trying to figure out how the few remaining bishops were responding to uh, religious, political, social changes. And I thought, hey, one thing I could do is to look at their wills because um, it's a piece of evidence that most uh, people of status at that time would leave behind. So I did, and I wrote this chapter that was all about actually how politicised bishops' wills became in this period uh, and how interesting they were and how they chose to make professions of faith that the Church of England was the one true church and apostolic succession. Um, and about how schismatic and heretical the radical Puritans were and all that kind of thing. So that was where it started. And then I thought, well, I wonder if this is a thing beyond um, bishops. And that led to, as it tends to, a massive escalation where I decided to read all the the clergy wills I could find. Then I went on to the National Library of Wales and realised that not only did they have amazing wills? They also had inventories, which tells you about vicars' stuff, um, as well as um, what vicars left to their, their nearest and dearest. Fantastic. Can you walk us through the parts of one of these wills, these clergy wills? So first we have the preface. Then there's a often a message to loved ones. Then there's the list of stuff they're giving away. And then just sort of a, a sign off. What's what's the structure of these wills generally? So, I mean, it, it depends. I mean, sometimes if you've got a nuncupative will, that's a, uh, a verbal will, it, it will be really short. So it could just be a few sentences saying, oh, I'm dying. Um, please bury me here. And this is who I leave my one cow to. Some of them, you get these generally for poorer people, but also for people who've just been suddenly taken sick, um, whether clergy or no. And they, they're usually really kind of mournful, I guess. I mean, I guess all wills are, but they're particularly so because it's a person who knows that this is approaching the end. And then you get a kind of standard, yeah, preface, 
uh, where I want to be buried, what I want to do with my stuff, uh, who I want it to go to, who I don't want it to go to, then kind of executors and witnesses. So uh, it's a really good way of figuring out who they liked, who they maybe didn't like, they really didn't like, um, and who they trusted to look after their wishes after they died, so the executors or executrix, if it was a woman. Um, and overseas of wills, that kind of thing. So it gives you an insight into who they socialised with, who they trusted, who they lived, loved, and who they didn't. Hmm. Let's start digging into the prefaces. So some of these prefaces were pretty spirited. And there's a 1639 preface that you said you particularly loved that I'd love to hear um, if you want to read it aloud to listeners. But Tell me about uh, these prefaces, what you find interesting about them. There's a couple that I really like. and There's a, there's a few standard ones that are kind of, you know, um, stating their allegiance to the church and saying, um, you know, where they want to be buried, what they believe, that kind of thing. Um, and then there's the political ones and the poetical ones. And the slightly poetic element, this 1639 will that you mentioned, um, it's of a, a vicar of Northup in Flintshire. His name is William Evans. And he writes that he's, he's writing this will now. He doesn't want to put it off because of the uncertain state of man's life, which passeth away like a shadow or fadeth away as a flower of the field. And I just, I mean, I'm sure it's, um, I'm sure it's drawn from somewhere else, but I thought the way that he wove it into his wishes and his intentions was rather beautiful. So that's one of my favourite poetic elements. Um, now, the slightly longer one um, is written by a guy called John Crusoe, who, uh, not Crusoe as in Robinson Crusoe, although you never know, um, <laughs> of Christ College Brecon. Now, the, the will's actually published in 1681, but I, I think it's probably written um, before this, otherwise um, it wouldn't make sense so much. And he says that he is an obedient and dutiful son to the Church of England, thoroughly satisfied after no ordinary disquietness at home and abroad, notwithstanding inconsiderable temptations to desert her, that her doctrine and discipline comes nearer to the apostolic and primitive than any other church in the Christian world. God deliver her from her adversaries on both sides, those of the Roman and schismatical factions. Oh, wow. Wow. It in so in a statement like that, that is remarkable. In a statement like that, okay. How much when you read it, do you read complete sincerity as they're as they're making these theological and political and personal statements about where they stand in the church or where they stand on the church? How much do you read sincerity and how much do you read them trying to cover their bases somehow? I mean, I suppose the people that give this kind of preface are concerned to appear orthodox um, and sound in doctrine and affiliation. Um, but I don't think that means that we can't trust them either. Uh, it's a real current. I was telling you about the bishop, bishop's wills. There's a whole generation of bishops who do this just just before and then just after the restoration. And, and I think the reason they do this is to say, here I stand. This is a debate. It's fresh with us. We've gone through the interregnum. Um, we've been ejected. We've been persecuted. Um, and it's important now when we're at this 
point of restoration to say, here I stand in this world and for the sake of the next. Um, so I don't think we can, I don't think there's any insincerity there necessarily. Yeah. And I guess there's another, there's another element of this too. It's, it's not just, you know, sincerity versus doing some practical work of covering their theological bases, but also preparing themselves to stand before God, preparing themselves for the next life, for the judgment, and to kind of express the ways that they've put or are putting their their theological life in order or their theological house in order. Yeah, very much so. It's like a kind of theological autobiography, almost. Um, and uh, you get that autobiographical sense running through wills a lot of the time. You know, this is who I've loved. This is what I've treasured. This is what I believe and this is what I stand for. So I'd love to talk about clergy relationships. I know there are a lot of really interesting details, facts, um, cultural nuggets that you have discovered in these clergy wills. And one, where I want to start is with their family lives. Uh, clergy in Wales were kind of haunted for several generations. Maybe you can tell me exactly how long by a rule that Welsh clergy could not marry, but they didn't exactly stick to this rule. And that's an understatement. Can you tell me about that and about these family relationships? So before the Reformation, clergy uh, in Wales couldn't marry because they were all Catholic. Um, now, they'd been, they were very slow uh, to adopt the, the stricter rules on, on marriage, to say the least. Um, and instead of just not having relationships, remaining celibate, uh, there's widespread evidence from the wills that I've looked at that they just had relationships and children. And so uh, actually a large number of them mentioned their base or natural children, um, as opposed to their, uh, after the Reformation, their legal uh, or legitimate children. Um, and when this changes uh, and clergy are allowed to marry, you see interesting examples of uh, men who leave money to their natural or base children by a certain woman. They refer to children who were clearly born after the Reformation as their legitimate and legal children. Um, so effectively, as soon as they could, they've married the mother. But the children who were born before the Reformation, before the, pro you know, while the prohibition on marriage was still in place, they're all illegitimate. Um, and what's interesting is obviously um, they could say, well, you know, not not my legal child, not my legal heir. Um, but they generally do choose to give those children money. Now, just because they could marry after the Reformation didn't mean that they always stuck strictly to, to any vows that they've made or indeed have not made. And you still see quite a few illegitimate children after the Reformation when they could marry, um, who were still actually credited and given acknowledged and given bequests in wills. So uh, there's quite a lot of uh, naughty clergy boys out there. Do you have any idea, Sarah, how this approach to marriage um, and approach to relationships and having, you know, you, you, there could be an argument that you could call some of these common law marriages, although not marriages within the church, how this family life did this affect their ministries at all? And, or, or is this, um, is this 
cultural? Is this a cultural thing? Like this sort of attitude to marriage? Like what, what, uh, what's going on there? I guess we just don't really know. Um, because you know, so few of these people actually leave any other papers behind. Um, and the kind of evidence, you know, reputation within the parish, that kind of thing would come from people whose views equally are seldom recorded. Um, I think if you had more diocesan papers and people were brought up on charges, uh, so clergy who, who had illegitimate relationships were, were brought up on charges, um, then that would be a different thing. But um, but I've not come across any of these that actually survive either yet. So we don't really know. I mean, I suppose uh, there are wills where someone's got illegitimate children, um, where they're also leaving a lot of bequests within their local community to the poor, to the parish, that kind of thing. And you think, well, I mean, this person clearly has a lot of interweaving relationships within a certain parish within that area. And so it seems unlikely that they were completely disgraced, but I guess it's it's ultimately unrecoverable. It's waiting for someone to do a great imaginative historical novel on it or something that could uh, maybe fill in the blanks, even in a fictionalised way. So you, I guess you don't see in this story that everyone, that all of the Welsh clergy come out as paradigms of, of holiness. Um, perhaps they were in other ways. And this is just, you know, one aspect of their lives. But you do see this embeddedness in community, um, which is really beautiful. And um, also there's an integrity there that they are being attentive to all of their children, whether their children are their legal children or not, taking care of the women who have been in their lives. And in many cases, when a woman has been previously a mistress, marrying her when they can. So while I also see in this sort of a little bit dysregulated or unregulated um, family life among among the clergy, I also see a, a longing to have family lives. Uh, and then also this integrity, like I said. I mean, you also see less optimal relationships I and mean, clergy families being prone to arguments as much as any other kind of families. So within these wills, there's also accounts of uh, families that clearly don't get on very well. So, for example, um, David Hughes of Mould, who in 1641 wrote of how he'd already provided for his daughter, Margaret. So maybe he'd given her a dowry and he doesn't have a lot of money. So he's given something for her. Uh, And how his other daughter, called Oriane, hath often displeased me and could not be ruled by me, um, having gone off and married someone he didn't approve of. And so he's not going to leave her anything in the will. So... (laughs) Um, you get you get uh, you get anecdotes like that and evidence of, of kind of family discord as well as evidence of really deep love and affection and care. Do you do you find something of the character of the Welsh church in these clergy wills? Yeah, I mean, so the Welsh church has always had a reputation for poverty. That's certainly borne out in a lot of the wills where or in, indeed the inventories where they leave behind maybe some livestock a few wooden items, a bit of textile, uh, and a couple of books. And that's all their possessions in the world. Um, they have very little money to leave behind. They have very little things. I mean, obviously, there's a range. So you also get at the upper end, um, uh, younger sons of gentry who leave behind 
leases and lands and silver and pictures and books and all that kind of thing. You do get a sense of other ways in which they kind of engage with the community. So um, a few of them list uh, debts for tuition. So they're clearly uh, either tutoring promising young um, poor you know, chaps who might eventually go off to university. Perhaps they're running an unofficial small school in their village, uh, lending money, um, which you wouldn't think necessarily should be something that a clergyman is doing in this period, but tend to be small amounts of money. Um, and they're also doing a lot of farming. So sometimes in the inventories, they'll list a certain number of beehives, which I think is rather charming. They're tutoring, they're uh, sometimes lending money, they're sometimes borrowing money, they're farming, um, and they're, they're offering... Oh, God, sorry, that... That snore was the dog snoring. <laughs> I'm leaving that in. It's really loud. That was incredible. <laughs> Another thing that I see here is that clergy are bivocational, and that's something that's being talked about quite a bit um, in the Episcopal Church. Is that still in the air where you are? Yeah, increasingly so. Um, partly because people become get ordained after they finished one previous career. Uh, maybe they kind of can carry it along uh, alongside. Also because we have titles like ordained local minister. So people who don't go and do residential training, but then have a limited, um, I'm trying to think of a better phrase than blast radius, um, but you know what I mean. So a limited kind of parish, I suppose. They can't go minister everywhere that they're, 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 they're kind of attached to one particular place. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a similar system in the Methodist church. Ah, okay, cool. Yeah, it, I mean, it's you definitely get the sense that they're doing this in, in the 17th century. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that it's a, <laughs> they have a ministry and they also have a side gig, you know, um, you know, or yeah. they have a... Well, I mean, for some of them, a survival gig. Yeah, yeah, survival gig, exactly. That's, I was trying to think, side, there's got to be something better than side gig. This isn't, you're not starting a farm for fun. This is not why we start farms. So I have this, I don't know if you're a, if you're a fan of adaptations of Jane Austen books or Anthony Trollope books. Do you watch these ever? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Like any sane and normal person. Yes. Okay, good. So when I watch these adaptations, or frankly, when I just read the books, because I also read the books, I get this certain image of British clergy life and it's, it's pretty parochial. It's pretty charming. You know, it's funny because this is Austen and Trollope. This does not sound like a clergy life in 17th or 18th century Wales. I'd like to talk a little bit now about the difference between Welsh clergy life and English clergy life. How were they differing even at this time? And I'm wondering if we see any of these clues about their ministries or the difference between their ministries and lives from their wills. Well, I mean, I think at the, at the upper end of Welsh clergy, um, in the later 17th century, you'd see something that's recognisable as a characterisation of, of a clergyman. So um, you get one Howell Jeffries who left a fowling piece, a silver tobacco box and a drinking cup. So you get now that's kind of what I'm talking already about. in your mind a picture. He smokes a pipe. He has a, uh, some claret. You also get a sense of them interest, being interested in music. Um, so, uh, this example of uh, Willem 
William Buttry, who was a vicar choral of St Asaph and left files, music books. He left them to his mother, interestingly, that kind of thing. So uh, certainly for some of them, uh, music might have been a form of relaxation. So we get that they did actually relax at times, not just farm. But we have descriptions, so of uh, some of the furniture. Uh, one of them left his leather cushions, which sounds rather racy. Um, <laughs> his blue stools, you had tapestries, um, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, so you can, if, you, if you're lucky with a really detailed will or a really detailed inventory, you can almost build a picture of what the room looks like. You know, um, maybe blue accented curtains. You've got some uh, nicely carved blue stools for people to sit on. You've got a harp in the corner of the room. Hmm. Um, there's some tobacco there for you all to smoke when you come round. Um, some nice claret served and maybe a roaring fire. Perhaps a spaniel such as the one that's currently snoring on my lap. Maybe singing a song. I mean, it sounds really kind of pleasant. Um, obviously, that, that probably wouldn't have been a realistic picture. Um, but at the upper end, you can kind of recognise in Austin something of that um, lifestyle. Um, and certainly something of the kind of Victorian uh, distrust of a younger, importunous um, clergy son uh, or chaplain or, or curate. Um, so not a lot of money, a bit of learning, a, a stable job, uh, but a quite a precarious lifestyle. So, yeah, you can see some of the cast and characters of literature uh, amongst the Welsh clergy. Um, very seldom. Do you see in literature the clergyman who left a brown speckled cow, some beads and a giant cheese? Again, this is at the very upper end of the Welsh clergy. Most of the Welsh clergy would not have had even a satirical description of their rooms like that. It would have been uh, they would have lived in a very small house. Um, they would have left behind, uh, you know, a dung heap uh, genuinely listed in one of the inventories I came across. Um, and, you know, some fabric, some farming implements and that kind of thing. So our picture could easily have been a little bit more master, Mayor of Casterbridge uh, than, um, than Jane Austen. You're more likely, sadly, particularly in the 17th century, to be farming um, than and tutoring and uh, really scraping to get the tithes in, that kind of thing. Uh, than you are to be, um, you know, walking the boundaries of your estate and smoking your pipe. Uh, but yeah, it depended on the parish, it depended on the position um, and your patronage uh, as uh, as an individual, really. Is there anything else that is that you found? I, I just know when you were looking through these wills, it was honestly like digging through an estate sale in some ways. You were finding all kinds of funny things and kooky things. And you've mentioned a lot of them already, but is there anything that we've left out that you want to talk about? Anything that really stuck out to you? Yeah. I mean, I suppose what the other thing that comes out of these wills is what people prize the most. So in most wills, you don't actually give away everything. You bequeath the things that you really value to particular individuals um, so a really famous example is William Shakespeare leaving his wife a feather bed, which people thought, I think in the past, it's been presented as being really not a great deal. 
Um, but actually a feather bed was really expensive. It was what usually one of the most valuable things in someone's house. Some of the things that from clergy wills they really valued seem to have been things like uh, like musical instruments I've mentioned already or books or big pieces of furniture such as carved cupboards or um, maybe tapestries, that kind of thing. Um, but smaller items also like uh, what they called apostle spoons. So uh, you could actually, it's a thing. If you Google apostle spoon, it will come up. But they're basically silver spoons with little characterizations of the apostles on. Um, and one of the vicars that I've looked at also had one in the image of Christ. So he had Christ and he had his apostle spoons. It's amazing. Um, and yeah, so these, because they're silver particularly, these are usually bequeathed to somebody who's very close, who they're very close to, particularly if they don't have a lot of other stuff. Well, how do you, how do you decide what to eat with an apostle spoon or, or with a, you know, you're, you're saying you're eating your morning gruel. I mean, surely it's not, you're not eating daily with an apostle spoon. You, do you eat with them at all? Are they safe for special occasions? Is the Christ spoon, it just, is this disrespectful to use? Like what, how did they use these spoons? I don't really know specifically what they'd be used for. So that's maybe that's a, a mystery to solve in the future. So if you were to sum all this up with a description of an average 17th or 18th century Welsh clergyman, what would the description of this man be? And give it maybe a, for fun, give him a name as well. I mean, I guess I'd have to, I'd have to kind of hedge my bets and go for two contrasting stories, the stories of uh, perhaps Morgan Jenkins and Edward Wynne. So Morgan Jenkins is the poor Welsh curate. Um, he's got it, living in quite a remote parish. Uh, to, subs- uh, to add to the, the um, goods that he gets in tithe, he farms the poor patch of land that he's got. He's got a few sheep. Um, he's maybe got some bees. He's got a few hens. Uh, he, his his dairy will make butter and cheese just to just to live on. He maybe if he's got a bit of university education, he might uh, make a bit more money tutoring uh, some promising local children. His possessions are few. He has carved wooden platter, um, maybe a large metal cauldron um, in which to make his food, um, and he has a small house. We can tell this by the number of. Uh, rooms that he describes in his inventory. He might make bequests to the poor man's box despite this, um, to particular people who've helped him in his life and to his children. Um, If he was slightly wealthier, he may leave some money for a local boy to be made apprentice, to better himself, to get out of the area, Um, or to local disabled children. For example, one of the clergy that I've looked at left money to a woman's blind daughter so that she would be able to sustain herself uh, comfortably. Looking after his parishioners, we don't know how holy or how well behaved he was because he tends not to say that in his will. We hope that he's well behaved. And then Edward Wynne, in contrast to poor Morgan Jenkins, is maybe the youngest son of a gentry family. Uh, he's been to Oxford, he's got an education. He's got some connections and he maintains some of them. And we can tell that because he gives funeral rings to some of his university connections in high places. Uh, He's got a couple of children uh, and he's able to leave lands and horses and uh, cows and sheep to them. Uh, He leaves 
his library of books to his friends, rich clothing. He leaves his best suit of clothing to his servant who'd looked after him during his illness. And we have some of a sense of his connections through the, the individual books that he leaves to uh, local uh, curates, maybe, or local clergymen, whether it's his Tremelius Bible, Mr. Gore's sermons, or Dr. Andrew's exposition of the Ten Commandments. Um, so Edward Wynne, um, very different proposition, clearly a big house. They both would have, as a leveller, their dung keep valued. Um, they both would have their dirty linen priced up in an inventory. Uh, so um, there's certain levellers. They're both serving a parish. Absolutely. I think that there are clergy today who could identify more with one or the other of these clergymen. Um, thank you just for this fascinating and detailed and immersive look into clergy wills and the lives that they reflect now, what do you want your will to look like, Sarah? What are you going to give away? So one of my uh, lifetime, or perhaps I should say death time ambitions, is uh, to do a will very much in the style of the 17th century. So I'm going to start out in the year of our Lord, whatever. I, uh, conscious of the manifold sins which I've committed throughout my life uh, and my great need for redemption by our Lord, um, would like to be buried, such as it will suit my executors, uh, not at night by store of candles, uh, but perhaps close to the altar or in the chancel where I sat in life. Um, I would um, make a long profession of faith in the Church of England by law established. Um, maybe I'd chuck some controversial stuff in there just so the people in the future go, oh, what was she thinking? Absolutely. Um, just to really mess with those historians' heads. Um, and um, I then obviously would firstly provide for the good health of the dogs. Other than that, I would probably leave my uh, portrait of King Charles the Martyr to, um, to my husband uh, so that he would take care of King, uh, Charles King and Martyr well. Um, I would leave my uh, great-grandmother's carved wooden chair uh, to somebody who I would hope would take care of it. And I'd leave my favourite books to people who I think would enjoy them. It's like, let's take care of the dogs, give some things to friends, give this painting to my husband, but also for real, we need to take care of the dogs. We really do need to take care of the dogs. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I've been talking today with Dr. Sarah Ward-Clavier. Sarah, thank you so much for this entertaining and really interesting conversation. No problem. My pleasure. And also a special thank you to the clergy who made it possible for us to have this conversation by leaving their wills behind, especially William Evans, John Caruso, Morgan Jenkins, and Edward Wynne. May they rest in peace and may light perpetual shine on them. Amen. Sarah, this is so fun. Thank you for your time. A special thanks today to Humphrey Humphreys and Cuthbert for our howling sound effects. I know they really worked hard on that. And thanks to you for tuning into the Living Church Podcast, a ministry of the Living Church Institute. 
To support this podcast and The Living Church, I really encourage you to check out our website, livingchurch.org, for all kinds of goodies. The latest Episcopal and Anglican news, our award-winning theology blog, Covenant, our magazine, resources for the parish. Must I really go on? Our serious gratitude to Julian Petralia for his musical contribution to today's podcast, Bravo Maestro. Catch us in two weeks when we welcome the Reverend Valerie Mayo to give us the scoop on the state of campus ministry right now and what it's like to reach out to Gen Z. I'm Amber Noel, your host, and it's been great to be with you. Stick around to enjoy your mini concert. Peace.